All right, this morning for Sunday school, we are going to follow the lectionary. However, we're not following the lectionary readings for today. We're going to look at the lectionary readings from yesterday, and then we'll use the lectionary readings for today for the next hour. That is the, that is the plan currently, but we never know how far we'll get in this hour, right? Because that happens all the time. So the readings for yesterday... And yesterday was the sixth day within the octave of the Nativity of the Lord, if you want the technical titles for today, or for yesterday. But uh, it's two, I mean, we've got the psalm, but we're just going to look at the two readings. Remember, the psalm is not necessarily classified as a reading. And so we're going to go to 1 John, if you looked at them yesterday. 1 John is the first one. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I don't know if you if you did do the readings. I don't know if you immediately caught it. I, for some reason, did not immediately catch what I, I think now is an obvious connection. But the first one is 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, we have these words. 1 John 2, 12. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the father. I write, I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, obvi- now, we're going to stop right there, uh, but we'll continue reading here in just a minute because it's the next verse is probably where we're going to put our focus. But there's lots of discussion about the section, right? Because it's in some ways it's kind of weird because it's somewhat repetitive, is it not? And there is some distinction. So you could first write down the different groups he's writing to, right? You have little children, fathers, young men, Right? Agreed that those are the, those are the sections, right? And he then kind of says one thing to, to one, but then he'll return back to the other one, right? So it's really weird. Like you would think he would just say, you would, typically you would think he would write, hey, to, to the little children, here's all the things I want to say. To the fathers, here's all the things I want to say. Young men, here's all the things I want. You think it would be grouped together a little bit better. So the fact that it's not really grouped together seems odd just from a reading perspective. And then some of the things he says seem somewhat similar, right? So then you're like, so is there, what are we supposed to do with this? Is this like, uh, what a lot of people do is they break those down. Little children, young men, and fathers, they break them down into like categories of spiritual maturity. But I don't know if that's what the text is saying. I don't know if this is just, I, I don't know. There's like, a, there we could just spend, we could spend a long time trying to work on this and hearing all the different perspectives. So there was a temptation of mine to just jump into that, right? I was going to jump into that. But when I finally got to the gospel reading, then I came back to 1 John and decided not to focus on that and all of those questions. In fact, I got a commentary here trying to break it all down. We could try to, we could try to break all of that down. But it's the next couple of verses, right? Because we just stopped reading in which verse? We stopped, we stopped in 14, right? So now we have 15, 16, and 17. 
And anyone who's been saved for probably more than five minutes knows these verses, all right? 1 John 2, 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Then he goes back to little children in verse 18, right? So, but, so the, the section we're going to look at is 15 through 17, because I think that's the relevant portion. Now, the other part is interesting, and maybe we'll get to it in a podcast or something. But for this hour, I just want to look at this concept. And it's pretty simple and it's pretty straightforward. We are told, it's, an, it's almost an imperative, right? It's like a, it's a command. Love not the world. Now you can write that in your notes. You can put it on your refrigerator. You can put it on your bumper sticker. You can, you can put it anywhere, right? I just tell, I've, I've heard a million sermons, love not the world. You've probably heard a million of them. When you leave, I think, I think if you were to sit, like stand outside a church, let a pastor preach his sermon on love not the world, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and you were to stand outside the door of the church as people walked out, I think if you ask them, so what does it mean to love not the world? How exactly are you going to put that into practice from this moment, this Sunday, all the way to next Sunday? Do you think people can give good definitive answers? I don't think they can. In fact, I think what you would probably get is you'd probably get a lot of conflicting answers. Well, you may not even get that. I think a lot of people say, well, that means don't do this or don't do this. But everyone would have a different line of what it means to love, not the world. And of course, we typically draw the line where it impacts other people, but not ourselves, right? And I've always been baffled by how that works, right? And and we we can talk about it. But there's that passage. It's simple. It's straightforward as far as being able to read it. I mean, we can read it again. 1 John 2, 15, love, not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. All right, so just keep that marked. Just, we will reference it. Now, the gospel reading for yesterday was Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we'll go to verse, let's see, Luke chapter 2, I'm going to go to this Bible, because I like the way it breaks down the paragraphs. Luke chapter 2. Now, if we, uh, if you go back to verse 25 to 35, that is the story of Simeon, right? Right? So they go into the temple, Simeon is there, he picks up the baby Jesus, right, and he offers these these words. And we can take those words apart, and there's a lot there to consider, a lot there, a lot there. But then something happens in verse 36, and there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Aser, and she was of great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. 
Now, how does the NIV translate verse 36? Seven years after her marriage, okay? So she had, she had uh, well, we can, there's a lot we could talk about there, but the main thing is she's a prophetess. Her name is Anna, all right? Verse 37, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayer night and day. And she was coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Israel. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace and the grace of God was upon him. Now, it's a very quick entry there about Anna, right? Doesn't say a lot. Do we have a little bit of a family connection? Correct? And then what else do we know about her? What, what, let's just make a list of the things we know about Anna. Let's make a list. I did, not, I did not make a list in my notes, but we can make a list together. What do we know? What are the basic elements that are basic things we are told about Anna? We, other than her family connection, what else do we know about her? She's old, right? She's old, okay? So when we say that, or elderly, what's the correct term? She is advanced in years, okay? She is great age. There we go. She's of great age, okay? So she's been around for a long time. Oh, she's a prophetess. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that, right? She's a prophetess, okay? Then what else? She's a widow, right? She was a widow. And it sounds like, how do we understand? Was she married for how long? She was married for seven years, but before that, it appears that she was a virgin, right? That seems to be, they seem to, they, they, for some reason, they seem to emphasize that, do they not? Right? They, like they, they mention that. That's kind of, that, I, that's not a typical way of saying it, correct? It's kind of uh, just, I think sometimes when the text points something out that's not usual, we should stop and at least consider it, right? So, but she was married for seven years and now she's a widow, Okay. Now, here's the key. Here, to me, this is what jumped out at me. Uh, those are all interesting things, right? Now, the, her virginity may demonstrate that she kept herself pure, right? So it may speak something about her, but then it said, has some very interesting things about what she spends her time doing. She does not leave the temple. Do you see that? She does not leave the temple. What else? She serves God with prayer and fasting night and day. Almost a perpetual kind of fasting, perpetual kind of prayer. She's she's there all the time. She's there all the time. Now, you immediately see why that part should have or jumped out at me. Because what did we just read about in 1 John? Love not the world. Now, here is Anna, who clearly is someone who seems to demonstrate what it means not to love the world. Now, that, that we can draw a great correlation and say, look at Anna, look at Anna. Well, amazing. So, in fact, I, I'm calling this Anna versus the world because she seems to have figured it out. However, 
We all know that when we look at that, we all stop and go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that what is required to love not the world? Because that seems to raise some serious questions, does it not? None of us do that in any way, shape, or form. And you could argue the reason she's able to do this is because, well, she's a widow, right? You could, you, you could argue. So then you're like, well, wait a minute. So what does that mean, right? But at the same time, we know she, it seems to emphasize that she remained a virgin until married. She was married for seven years. Now she's a widow. But she never leaves the temple. It doesn't say much about what she's doing as a prophetess, right? It doesn't really say much about that. She's a prophetess, but she spends all of her time in the temple. So I'm assuming speaking to people in some capacity, right? Which is interesting that she's a woman doing this, right? Which is, there's a lot of unique things about her that kind of stand out that you kind of go, whoa. In fact, if you have a Bible dictionary, let's just look and see. Okay, right. Okay, yeah, she's, yeah, so she, she is speaking to people, right? So, but look, let's just see if the Bible dictionary offers anything about Anna. Let's just see. Let's just add some insight. Six lines. Okay, let's, let's, take, a, let's take a look at it. What page? Page 77. All right. Let's just take a look. Okay, well, that's, that, we'll just confirm what we said to make sure you know that we, you know, we're not crazy. All right. Let's see here. Where is she? Anna, all right, yeah, there's not much here. A widow, daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was at the temple in Jerusalem when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be dedicated. Anna recognized Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Not, Not a lot there. Now, you could argue, someone could argue, well, you know how she recognized him? Because she spent all of her life dedicated to the things of God. That's how she recognized him. The other people who had not dedicated their entire life to the things of God didn't recognize. So then you could argue, see the benefit of doing this? But it raises questions. Is that what it means to love not the world? Is Anna the example of love not the world? Well, obviously, the lectionary put the two readings together. So obviously, someone, I think, somewhere was like, hmm... Anna, uh, the, you know, she, she's a great example of this, but I don't know exactly how we can in any way, shape, or, can, we, can we emulate that? Can we follow that? Can we apply her lifestyle to ours? We would be in trouble, right? Because if we just take the spiritual things she did, if we just take the spiritual things we did, well, one, I think we could emphasize her purity. Okay, so there's, there's purity there. I think that's something we could pursue, right? Because it does mention her virginity. But then, never leave the temple? Well, what, if we're going to try to draw a correlation to that, what do we do? Like, we never leave church? Now, some people say, well, we're the temple. Okay, well, that, that, that's not really helpful because, well, we never leave ourselves. So that really doesn't even mean anything. So, so, and then she gives night and day to prayer and fasting. That would be our continual amount of, like, I don't know how we would even come close to it. Now, we are called to pray without ceasing. We are called to pray without ceasing. And, and the early church referred to that as the Jesus prayer, when we could talk about that. Uh, but so, so we won't go to there. Fasting, we could do fasting. 
We could do fasting, but here, here would be the question. I'll, I'll just kind of pose this. If we, were, if we were to find a way to take Anna's actions and to put them into practice in some way, shape, or form, would that even guarantee, would that prove that we then love not the world? Would that prove that you love not the world? I, I don't know. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, because that's, that's something internal, so I don't know if it would 100% prove it. You, you could, but, but then, then you would have to argue that there would, has to be a tangible way in which to prove it. So let's talk a little bit about love, not the world, and at least consider this concept to some level and see if we can come up with something. First, let's just start with the word love. Let's just start with the word, world, the word love, okay? Now, we know there's some different Greek words, but let's just start with an English definition. I'm going to use Merriam-Webster, okay? Here we go. Love. Definition number one, strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties. So we'll just refer to this as a strong affection, a strong affection. It can be, a, 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 it can be an affection or an attraction based on sexual desire. It can be affection and tenderness felt by lovers. It can be an affection based on admiration. So there's a lot of, it's just a strong affection, a strong affection for. But there can be lots of reasons for that affection. But it's just a strong affection. Okay, I don't know if that really helps a lot. Number two, warm attachment, enthusiasm, or devotion. An attachment, an enthusiasm, a devotion. Now, th- people are enthusiastic about a lot of things, are they not? And therefore, sometimes those things we're enthusiastic, what do we have a tendency to say about them? I love the particular thing. I love this sport, or I love this, or I love that. Whatever the case may be. So we know we experience that to some level. All people do to some level. Um, it can be, it can also refer to an unselfish, loyal type of love. It's, it's, it's an unselfish, it's loyal, it's committed. Right? This seems to almost, it, it almost seems like Miriam Webster is saying that there's different types of love or different kind of levels, maybe, would be a, a decent word, possibly. We, we could possibly go there. So, Love not the world, okay, so don't have a strong affection for it, don't have a strong, uh, don't have an, uh, a warm attachment or an enthusiasm to it, don't have an unselfish loyalty to it, okay, maybe, that, that, that maybe clarify it a little bit, let's go back to First John, and let's do this, let's do it, let's look, at least look up the Greek word there. And 1 John 2, to see which Greek word to use. Because you know there's a number of Greek words uh, for love, right? A lot of times people make a lot big deal out of this in sermons. And we have demonstrated here before that in some cases that's not accurate. Because some of those words are very much used interchangeably. Like some people will say, this love is this. But then that same term will be used in a different way. And you're like, well, it's not always so clear. It makes for good preaching, but it doesn't always make for uh, actual understanding. So 
We're going to go to 1 John. It's agapo, okay? Which is, that's the, that's the word everyone really focuses a lot on. But we, we also realize it can mean a lot of different things, right? Uh, love, where is it? Love, not the world. Here it is. Agapao, I think is how I said. Strong's G25, agapao. 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 All right, agapao. Now, agapao uh, could mean, now listen, see, just right here just tells you immediately. Agapao can mean to love in a social or moral sense, to be loved. It can be of persons, to welcome, to entertain, to be fond of, to love dearly, to be well-pleased, to be contented at or with a thing. So it doesn't really, it doesn't, agapao is not one of those like, oh, it, it means we, this, it just, it's, it's very general. It's a very general kind of love if you really look at it. Agapao, I mean, to welcome, to entertain, to be fond of, or to love dearly. I mean, to be well-pleased, to be contented at or with a thing. I mean, there's nothing there that just screams agapao is this like intensive love, is there? There's nothing there that seems to indicate that. So then that even makes it even more complicated, right? Because if it's very general, then that means it, how, how easy would it be to then say you love the world to some kind of level? You're going to in some way, shape, or form. So what do we, I don't know what we do with this. But it's something that every Christian must struggle with because we need, we, we need some kind of answer because it does it not give us some pretty severe warnings there about this. All right. So I think looking up all the different kinds of love may, may not be super helpful. So I did a little research just to see how other people would try to handle this. And they typically say to love, not the world. And, and I'm going to read for some of their points of what they suggest. We'll just use this as kind of a hypothesis. So, so what we know, this is what we have in the lectionary. We have an imperative to love, not the world. Can we all agree? We're maybe even given some very good reasons in 1 John why not to, but we'll worry about that later. Right now, we're trying to figure out what it is. Then in Luke, we're giving kind of an example that Anna is a good example of someone who clearly doesn't love the world. She's committed her life to the things of God. But that would seem to almost call for what kind of life? A monastery. Well, nobody wants that. So then how do we take the love, not the world, and apply it in a non-monasterial setting, right? How, how do you love, not the world, and not live as a monk or as a nun, right? Like, how does that work? Now, everyone thinks they know what it means, but I don't think anyone has, has, has any specific clue. So let's look at what at least one source says. This is, how, this is what they wrote. The biblical admonition... To not love the world can be found in various passages. For example, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, which we just read. While interpretations and understanding may vary, right, immediately, that's, the, that's always the go-to, meaning what? There's no, there's no agreement. There's no agreement. Yeah, well, because I think you just have to admit it. They say, here are some general principles one might consider in an attempt to follow this admonition. So they're like, look, everyone interprets this differently, 
But here are some general principles if you really want to follow this admonition. So what do you think they're going to offer up as ways that we can love not the world? Well, they start this way, all right? Instead of starting with something we shouldn't do, they start with something we should do, which I think is kind of interesting, right? Because if you say love not the world, don't we typically, wouldn't we typically go from a more negative way? Well, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. They start in a positive way, which is kind of interesting. Here's what they tell us to do. You ready? Prioritize God. Place God at the center of your life and make him your top priority. This means seeking a deep and personal relationship with God through prayer, worship, and studying of his word. Now that all sounds good, right? Now hear what they are saying, to love not the world. The way you can keep yourself from loving the world is that you prioritize something over the world. Now once you start speaking in this kind of language, what is the inevitable result of speaking in this kind of language? What is the inevitable result that's going to happen? Well, now you're creating something that can be what? Measured and tested. And that becomes a major problem, right? Because if, if, if I say the way to love, not the world, you, and you see kind of the way they are going, the way to keep you from loving the world is that you prioritize something over the world. You can't be loving the world if something else is the priority, right? It's very difficult to love something else if you love something so great that there's no room left for anything else. You can't love something else if the love for one thing is greater than the other things. That's just the way it works. Just forget God, forget Christianity, forget anything else. If you have something you really love, something that's very much a priority in your life, what happens to everything else? It gets set to the side. You can see this, a great example, you can just see this in teenagers, right? Once they get the girlfriend or the boyfriend, what happens to everything else? They're friends? Friends, like, I haven't seen them in six months. I don't even know. I I thought they died. I thought they'd been kidnapped. I put them out. I contacted, you know, I made an Ember alert. I haven't seen them. And and they would say, no, I still love my friends. I still cover Whatever. No, you don't. They don't know. They don't know anything is happening. They don't know that the family exists. They don't know what's going on in the world because the only thing they can focus on is what? The person that they now, and we'll put it in quotation marks, the person they now love. So whatever captures your love because, or what it be, takes your priority. It's the concept of where your, where your heart is. There's your treasure, right? Or where your treasure is. There, isn't that the way it goes? Right? What you treasure is where, what you love, right? So it's kind of a, a circle here. So what they're saying is if we put, could put God as the priority, there would be literally no room to love anything else. Now that can be, and so, and then immediately, what do you do? Everyone would, if you ask Christians, like, just, I always find it funny. It always makes me laugh. So like in, if you, in the military, whenever we'd go to Airman Leadership School or the NCO Academy or any kind of training or school, they always did the things about, you know, questions about life and, 
and priorities and just a lot of things, just talking about normal things. But a lot of times they would ask this general question, what are the most important things in your life? And anyone who claimed to be a Christian, anyone in the group who claimed to be a Christian, they always say, God first. God, family, country. Some, some nonsensical thing like that, right? And when I say nonsensical, it's just so cliche that it, it just sometimes you're like, whatever. And then you would be you're like, I would sometimes look at the people, I've worked with you for five years. When has God been your priority? What are you talking about? How is there a priority? You barely make it to church on Sunday, much less any other thing. I've never even heard you mention anything about God, but God is your priority. Whatever. It's easy to say God is the priority, right? We can all say something is a priority. How do you know it's a priority? What you do, right? I, I, I can remember so many times. Sometimes martial arts is it's hilarious because the martial arts instructors, they just assume. Like, and it's kind of a weird dynamic because you're paying to be there. But they have this, the martial arts instructors typically have these very, like, hey, you come here, but this is only 10%. You better be doing the 90% at home and I'm going to know that you're doing the 90% at home because when I come back in here and I ask you to do something, if you can't do it, it's because you haven't been doing it at home. And you get chewed out and you're like, wait a minute, I'm paying you $100 a month. What's going on here, right? But because they were like, if it's a priority, you'll do it. I always thought it was funny that you can, a martial arts instructor can be much more harsh than you can be in church, right? You're not supposed to do that in church. But a martial arts instructor doesn't care, right? So, but it's just, but that's true in anything. If, if, if you're a coach for any, any, any kids playing any kind of sport, you're going to tell really quick which kids care and which kids don't. Because the kids who care are going to be at practice before anyone else, and they're going to leave after everyone, and you're going to know that they're working on it on their off time. So I think it's, I love the idea that we should prioritize God. The only problem is I don't know. I mean, that's a much more easy, that's a much more easily defined thing than to say love the, to love not the world is somewhat vague, right? To so prioritize God that you don't have to even worry about figuring out what loving not the world is. See, if you, can prior, if you prioritize God, you don't have to define what it means to love not the world because you're, there's no way you're going to do it because you have no room for anything else. So I think in some ways that's a brilliant approach. Love not the world. Okay, let's not try to figure out what that means. Let's look up the word love. Let's look up the word world. Let's try to figure it out. Is it, is it, is it material things? Is it the idea? Everyone has, I think this just says prioritize God and you don't have to worry about it. Because if God is the priority, everything will fall to the ways. I just don't know how much of a priority God is. I know we always want to believe that it is. Now, once again, though, we run into the, do, are we not going to run into the same problem? If, we, if God is ultimately the highest priority, what should that look like in a practical way? Would that not look like Anna? Well, that calls for almost what again? Monasterial way of living. You can see why the early church, everyone ran to monasteries. You, can, you really can see why. You can't criticize them for it. They're like, what am I supposed to do? Love not the world. Well, the only way I can do that is to do what? Abandon the world or prioritize God. Well, if I'm going to prioritize God and God is the priority in every area of my life, what would, it, what would I, just think of a seven day, if we were to do a social experiment 
If you were to take seven days out of a week, all right, well, I mean, it's a whole week. Take a week out of a month. Let's say it that way. If you were to take seven days, and you're like, these seven days, God is going to be my priority. Would that, would that look different than all the other days of the month, week, year? I think it would. And I think by the end of those seven days, we would then have to say, if this is what making God a priority looks like, then I've not made God a priority most of my life. And then you would probably say, if I'm going to make God a priority like that, moving forward, I'm going to have to make some serious changes, like maybe quit my job, <laughs> get rid of my family. You know what I'm saying? Like sell all of my uh, material possessions. Like, I don't know how you, I, what would it look like? I mean, that's something that only every individual could write out. Like what would be five things you could do to make God a priority in your life? And I don't know. I, I, I don't know if they, I don't even know if it would be sustainable. Now that's, but see, that's, I don't like saying that because that makes it sound like I'm saying that we can't do it. But I think that there's a real, there's a, there's a very difficult reality here that I don't have the answers to. I want to make God the priority. I do like that approach. If God is the priority, you don't have what? Room for anything else. So I, I am going to say that again, that to love not the world, at least in part, requires if we make God the priority, if God is the priority, if we love God supremely, then there is no room to love anything else. That is just true. If we truly do that. Now, I don't know. I don't think we can ever achieve it. Now, when we say we can't achieve it, what's the inevitable result of saying we can't achieve it? that we just kind of accept it. And I know people get nervous about that, but I just don't know if it's possible. Other than if we're really willing to make the changes that would be required. But I don't know if we can sustain our life by making the changes that are real. Not everyone can live in the temple 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not everyone can. I don't think everyone, I don't think everyone would be called to that. Right? I'm, I, I, I've said this before, and it took me a long time to figure this out, but I, I, I can't remember. I had a conversation here. So I think it was, it was around the pulpit, and there was someone who had, was thinking about going into the ministry, possibly going to school, seminary. And I, I think I said something along the lines, just remember that you cannot see other people and the way that we think as about being a pastor, because if you're going to be a pastor, your whole life is dedicated to what? Should be studying God's word, studying God's word, studying God's word, studying God's word. You, now, when I was young, I didn't catch on to this because I, I was already doing those things before I became a pastor. But that's probably why I became a pastor, right? So, but the average person sitting in the pew, you can't really judge them according to that standard. You really can't. But at the same time, if you don't, then what are you kind of telling the people in the pew? That God really doesn't have to be the priority? I say, I don't know exactly how you work it, but I do think that there's a difference for someone who's going into ministry versus someone who is, well, doing all the things that they do in their life. There's got to there's have to be a distinction, right? Now, what should that should lead to is the people in the pew, they having greater respect for the person in the pulpit and then maybe being more willing to be humble and listen. You think, but it doesn't work that way. But I, there's, I don't know. 
There's a, if we're all supposed to prioritize God, then, then in some ways you could argue we should all look the same. The pastor and the people in the pew should look the same, right? But we know that there's just no way that can work out. There's just no way. So I, I don't know how we put that into practice, but there's the first point. We're going to run out of time quickly, so let's move to the second one. The second one is seek spiritual growth. Focus on growing in your faith and developing a biblical worldview. This involves regularly studying your Bible, meditating on its teachings, and seeking wisdom from fellow believers and spiritual mentors. All right, so you prioritize God. That's more of a generic way, right? That's just a general statement. But even when it says prioritize God, what elements did it mention? It mentioned prayer, worship, and study, right? And then when it says seek spiritual growth, what does it mention again? Study. So in both cases, this is the idea. Okay, what is your priority in your life? My priority in life is God. Now, as a result that that's my priority, everything else is going to take a back seat. So therefore, I'm not going to have a problem with loving the world. Now, what does it mean to prioritize God? Well, to prioritize God means I am going to seek and pursue spiritual growth. That's going to be, I want to grow spiritually. Before I want to do anything else, I want to grow spiritually, which is going to demonstrate study, 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 study. Now, immediately we we already realize, I, I don't know if that works. Do you think the average person in the pew really prioritizes God above everything else? I don't know. I don't know. And do you think people seek spiritual growth above everything else? I don't think they do. There's a million distractions. So, I am. Now, there would be no distraction if God's first. And there would be no distraction if you sought spiritual growth above everything else. There wouldn't be, because nothing else could get in the way of that. And, and again, we do see this play out in a worldly way, right? I mean, if, if you've ever been involved in sports, you see this. There's the people who don't really care. They just want to put on the uniform so that they can wave at their girlfriend in the stands. They want to be seen. They, it's fun. Oh, school spirit, blah, blah, whatever, okay? They get on my nerves, right? And then there's others who are like, I'm playing this sport and I'm playing it to do what? To win, to win, and I'm taking it serious, and I'm going to be here, and I'm going to pursue it, and I'm going to get better, and I'm going to study it, and I'm going to watch it, and I'm going to know it, and I'm going to, and, and, and they will not stand for what? Losing. Losing is not even an option. Right? Not even an option. I got, that's why I got myself in trouble playing, uh, you know, Little League Baseball when I was a little kid. Right? Because I got mad at all the other kids. So I'm out there in the baseball diamond yelling and screaming at other kids and I'm trying to take over their positions. I'm like, I'm running from the outfield, shoving the kid off second base. I'm like, I'm like yelling at everyone out there. They're like, what is happening here? And I'm like, these kids, I kick them all off the team. I'll play by every position by myself, right? Because I wanted to win. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about the snacks. I didn't care about it. I didn't care about making friends. In fact, I didn't want friends. I wanted victories, right? That's what I wanted. Well, that's taking, that's making, guess what? Nothing else distracts you if you're that focused. Well, 
in a much more godly way, because I wasn't very godly. I mean, I wasn't a Christian, but I was not nice to anyone. I, was, I yelled at the coach. I yelled at parents. I yelled at everyone because I wanted to win. Well, if we prioritize God and we seek spiritual growth, that's going to be. And then the third one, and the third one even becomes much more theologically difficult. Live a life of obedience. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's easy to say, right? But what are they going to say here? Strive. I like that word. Strive to align your thoughts, words, actions with God's commands. Now, you'll notice something that's happening here. All of their approach is not on what not to do. Have you noticed that? They've yet to tell us something not to do. They've spent their whole time telling us what to do. They're so they're focusing on the positive pursuit. Because the argument is as we've already stated, if you are so if, if something is the priority and you're pursuing that, everything else takes will find its proper place. Yeah, you won't have time. You won't have time for it. You won't be able to do anything. This, sometimes they do this in addiction uh, programs. Is that you've got to make your life so busy that you don't have time to consider the addiction. Now, okay, that's, that may be like a psychological game, but it can be very beneficial. This is saying that you dedicate. What are you striving? So you're prioritizing God. You're working on spiritual growth, and then you're striving to live a life of obedience in your thoughts, your words, your actions. This includes following the moral and ethical guidance found in the Bible and striving to live a righteous and holy life. This is like a disciplined life. This is disciplining yourself. Now, this is all very much, there's no way to get around this. This is very much human effort. This is like, you're just going to reach down and you're going to do this. You're going to discipline yourself. And it is at least a question that has to be put forth. What, what can a Christian life look like based on pure human effort and discipline? Well, we should be able to accomplish a lot with just mere human discipline. And, and how do we know that? Because we see it play out in everyday life, right? We see what uh, uh, athletes, athletes can accomplish by physical and uh, just de- dedication and discipline, right? We can see what musicians and artists can accomplish by just what? Discipline. Writers. You, you can go on and on. People in any industry. Who typically rises to the top of an industry? That, that's, that's the priority. And guess what will happen to everything else as they pursue that, uh, the top place in their industry? Everything else falls to the wayside. They may even lose their family because what's first? That. So if, if, a, if human people can accomplish that, then that means there is some level. Now, that, just remember that none of that would have anything to do with what? The heart. This still could all be done in a very external way. So we still would have some problems. All right, what's, so at this point, this has all been positive. Prioritize God, seek spiritual growth, live a life of obedience. And guess what number four is? Four finally takes a more negative approach. Avoid, avoid worldly values and temptations. Be mindful of the values and pursuits that are in conflict with biblical teaching. This may involve avoiding materialism, 
greed, excessive pursuit of pleasure, and anything that distracts, distracts you from God. So avoid anything that distracts you from God. Now, of course, they put this further down because if you were to follow their system, there wouldn't be a lot of things distracting you from God because you've already filled your life with what? God is the priority. So in theory, this makes some sense. Hey, God, you're so pursuing God. Now, as you're pursuing God, you need to stop and think of any thoughts, desires, feelings that you're doing that is in contrary to God. And you must acknowledge that. Okay. And then we try to avoid that. All right. Number five, cultivate humility and gratitude. Cultivate humility and gratitude. Develop an attitude of humility. Recognize that everything you have comes from God. This means being grateful for his blessings and not becoming overly attached to worldly possessions or achievements. So becoming humble and grateful. That sounds good. I don't know how you can just necessarily pull that off. I don't know if you can just make yourself humble. I don't know if you can just make yourself grateful. But, all right, that, that's, that's where they're going. All right, we're going to run out of time here. Let's look at another one. Engage in acts of love and service. Show compassion, kindness, and selflessness towards others. Use your resources, talents, and time to help those in need to make a positive impact in the world. So if you're going to love not the world, what are you going to do? You're going to basically put other people before yourself. You're going to love them. You're going to serve them. You're going to have this, I'm serving, loving. All of that sounds wonderful, does it not? It sounds great. We got one more. I mean, they're going all in here. They're going all all in here. All right, number seven, surround yourself with like-minded believers. Seek fellowship and accountability in a community of believers who share your commitment to living according to biblical principles. This can provide support, encouragement, and guidance in your spiritual journey. So you need to find other people who are just as committed to what? God being the priority. Okay, you're back to a monastery. Exactly, you're back to a monastery. You're back to a monastery. Now, this is the kind of stuff that's preached Sunday after Sunday in churches across America. And I know it sounds so good and everyone will sit there and go, amen and amen. There will always be a few people in the congregation who will take it very serious and put it in their notes. and like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. But I think it all leads ultimately to what? Total discouragement and depression and and frustration. I think others will say, yeah, yeah, okay, God, they're not like they're opposed to it, but they just kind of take it with a grain of salt, right? They're kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know? It's like, it's like a teenager listening to mom and dad. Okay, yeah, right, mom and dad. It's not like they may be opposed, but they're just not paying much attention to it. Well, I think those who really care are like, I'm going to do this. God's going to be the priority. I'm going to seek spiritual growth. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do, and and it's, but like you said, this sounds like a monastery, If you're going to seek like-minded people, very few people in the church even have this mindset. So then you're going to become frustrated with your church. And then what can happen is then then a lot of people then will leave the corporate church to then go find a house church where there's four or five people, right? Okay, and then say, we've got the right priority. And then which then usually destroys the humility, okay? And in many cases destroys joy because now it's like you're in a boot camp 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't know how you, I don't know what you do. 
So let me throw out just, I, I, we're out of time, but let me throw out a hypothetical. And I know this is going to sound heretical. Is it possible, and I stress this, is it possible that when we say love not the world, we have misunderstood this for almost 2,000 years. When it says love not the world, we immediately think about what? When we say love not the world, what immediately, what comes to our mind about loving not the world? What, what immediately comes to our mind? How would we categorize what it means to love not the world? Okay, we, we think of things, right? Like maybe things we do, like activities, actions, possessions, hobbies, right? Is it possible that love not the world should simply refer to the ideology and morality of the world? In other words, we should not become enamored. We should not become, we should not develop strong affection for the ideals and the philosophies and the concepts of the world. We're not to love the world's system and the ideals it promotes, which are those which are very anti that of scripture. Now, if we reduce it to that, that's much, that's, that's much easier to manage, is it not? Because if we take love, not the world, as everything, then you're like, so what can I do? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's New Year's Eve. A lot of people are going to be doing a lot of things, right? A, a, lot, a, a lot of fun activities, well, does that mean you're loving the world? See, we always reduce it to that, right? Well, you can't watch too much TV. You can't watch movies. You can't really love sports. Can't do this. Can't do that. Can't do this. And, and we try to just say, all I can do is pray and read my Bible. That's all I can do. But it's another thing to be involved in activities and things, but you're still demonstrating that you don't love the ideals and the ideology and the philosophies and the morality of the world, that you're loving a different system of thinking, a different worldview. If we reduce it to simply that, it's somewhat manageable, is it not? I think, I think it is. I think it is to some level. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce says this, all right? And let, let's see if, if we can agree. This is just one paragraph in his commentary on First uh, John. All right, just, just one paragraph. This is page 78. When John, and just please note, he approaches First uh, John in a way that I re- completely reject because he makes everything a test, a test, a test to see if you're saved, right? So, but let, listen to this paragraph and we'll have to end here. I know we didn't really come to any definitive conclusions, but the whole point sometimes is just trying to talk these out. Let's end with this. When John says that Christians are not to love the world or anything in the world, he is not thinking then so much of materialism, parentheses, things, as he is of the attitudes that lie behind materialism. For he knows that, for he knows, as we should all know, that a person without worldly goods can be just as materialistic as a person who has many of them, and conversely, a rich person can be quite free from this and any other forms of worldliness. John is actually thinking of self-ambition, pride, the love of success, or flattery, and other such characteristics. 
uh, law recognizes this in his excellent rephrasing of the Apostles' Pill. He writes, do not court the intimacy and the favor of the unchristian world around you. Do not take its customs for your laws, nor adopt its ideals, nor covet its prizes, nor seek fellowship with its life. That's how it's paraphrased. I'm going to quote that uh, again. Do not court the intimacy and the favor of the unchristian world around you. Do not take its customs for your laws, nor adopt its ideals, nor covet its prizes, nor seek fellowship with its life. Do not set your heart on the godless world or anything in it. They are reducing it more to the ideals, to the concepts, to the principles. This is almost a, hey, here are all these principles and ideals and concepts and thinking. As a Christian, I'm not to love that way of thinking. I am to love a different way of thinking. If we reduce it to that, do you feel that's much more manageable? Yeah, I mean, we, well, we obviously have to be able to identify that it's, we, even if we don't understand all of the concept, we have to be able to identify that's not in line with this. So, I mean, of course, that would still imply that you're studying and all of that, but it's much more, it's, it's much more specific. The other one's so vague, it's like, okay, so what am I supposed to do? Well, you can see the, the lectionary put two concepts together and you can see exactly where they're leading. Go live inside a monastery and give your life to prayer and fasting. Okay, well, that's not reasonable. Okay? You could say we could, we could all do more. Yes. We make lots of excuses for why we do less. Yes. But that's a never-ending fight. I can clearly say those ideas, concepts, and perspectives are not in line with God's word. And I'm not going to love those ideas and perspectives. I'm going to love an idea and perspective that is contrary to it. That we can pursue. And that, I think, is much more manageable. I'm only putting it out as a hypothesis. And the only reason I'm going with this is because I don't think the other one is ever doable, manageable. And I think it's all talk and it doesn't ever show up in practice. Because every study that ever shows up, so Christians are just like the people in the world. We like the same movies, the same hobbies, same activities. Give me a, and we see it in the church. Churches, look, that's why they have all the fun food and activities because we want the exact same. We want friendship. We want activities. We want fun. We want this. Churches cancel services for the Super Bowl, for this, for that, for picnics. Why? Because we're just like the world. So that's a problem in and of itself. We can see, I don't know how to fix that. But the one thing we should not be like the world is we should not love their ideals and their perspectives and their philosophies because we should think radically different than them. And I think what has happened is we've been so focused on not, oh, I don't, I'm not going to watch those movies or not do this or not do that, not do that, thinking that we're somehow godly when then we turn around and demonstrate the exact same philosophies and ideas that the world has. We just may spiritualize them, but we're, we're very similar. I think that is the way to approach it. But I could be wrong, but we are out of time, so we can't pursue it anymore. All right, so let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, I don't know if we will ever understand fully this command to love not the world. I know we probably all have been guilty of violating it,
Help us just pursue a greater understanding of it so that we can at least move ourselves in the right direction. We thank you that ultimately our salvation is not dependent upon it because our salvation is dependent upon the finished work of your son. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,